the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we're going to talk with Barbara Marlowe. She's the co-author, along with her adopted daughter, of the book A Brave Face, Two Cultures, Two Families, and the Iraqi Girl Who Bound Them Together. Really a heartwarming and fascinating story. We're also going to talk with John York. He's a policy analyst at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about how campaign finance reform would benefit the media rather than the people. And we'll talk finally with uh, Dr. David John Seal, his uh, amazing new book, The New Copernicans, um, Millennials and the Survival of the Church. An important conversation, but an important opportunity on Friday to hear him speak. He's going to be at Mount Scott Church of God at 9 a.m. to about 11.45, presenting a very hopeful view of millennials and the role that they're playing in the, or will play, or could play in the survival of the church and how we misunderstand who and what they are. So we'll uh, talk with him about that and make sure you have all the important details about that uh, gathering on Friday. Dr. Uh, David John Seal at about 5.15 this afternoon. Before we start, we want to take a look at some of the uh, headlines of the day. After a frenzied few hours in which federal authorities made several high-profile arrests and outlined a top-secret investigation into an alleged scam involving rich and famous clients paying millions to a network of counselors and coaches to ensure their privileged children be granted admission to some of the country's most prestigious colleges, a judge said Tuesday that jailed actress Felicity Huffman, accused of paying a bribe to help get her daughter into a top school, was eligible for release on $250,000 bond. Huffman and Fuller House star, or rather Full House, maybe I guess there's a sequel, Fuller House star, Lori Laughlin, um, headline a veritable who's who of the rich and powerful charged in the bombshell case. College coaches and others are among the reported 50 people charged with racketeering, conspiracy and more in a case that has implicated uh, schools such as Wake Forest University, Georgetown and the University of Southern California. Federal investigators said the coaches accepted bribes in exchange for admitting students as athletes, regardless of their ability or inability. Investigators and parents would pay a predetermined amount to college entrance consultant William Rick Singer, who then would give the funds to coaches, SAT and ACT administrators. Uh, Singer, 58, has been called the ringleader behind the scheme. He agreed to plead guilty in Boston federal court Tuesday to charges including racketeering, conspiracy and obstruction of justice. The alleged bribes ranged from several thousand dollars to six million dollars, for example. Documents allege that Laughlin and her famed fashion designer husband, Massimo, whatever his last name is, agreed agreed to pay bribes totaling $500,000 in exchange for having their two daughters designated as recruits to the USC crew team, despite the fact that they didn't participate in crew, thereby facilitating their admission to USC. Well, the cheating scandal rocked Hollywood on Tuesday as federal prosecutors outlined their case, and famed legal scholar uh, Alan Dershowitz predicts it could even be more widespread. 
House Judiciary Committee Republicans yesterday released hundreds of pages of transcripts from last year's closed-door interview with ex-FBI attorney Lisa Page, revealing new details about the Bureau's controversial internal discussions regarding an insurance policy against then-candidate Donald Trump. Page first entered the spotlight in December of 2017 when the Justice Department Inspector General disclosed that she and then-FBI Special Agent Peter Strzok exchanged numerous anti-Trump text messages. Among their texts was one concerning the so-called insurance policy. During her interview with the Judiciary Committee in July of last year, Page was questioned at length about that text and essentially confirmed this re- This referred to the Russian investigation. In response to the release of the page transcripts, Representative Doug Collins, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, vowed that uh, on Tuesday night that he would reveal to the American people the double standard within the Justice Department in its handling of the investigations involving former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and now President Trump. Former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort today faced his second federal sentencing this month as special counsel Robert Mueller pushes for him to receive 10 additional years in prison on top of the 47-month term issued less than a week ago by Virginia Judge T.S. Ellis. Two key questions remained lingering before the uh, verdict was announced earlier today and unanswered in the hours leading up to that hearing. First, will Obama-appointed Washington, D.C. Judge Amy Berman Jackson allow Manafort to serve whatever sentence she gives him Concurrently with the 47-month term already given, and second, will President Trump, who has long characterized Mueller's Russia probe as a partisan witch hunt, eventually pardon Manafort or commute his sentence regardless of what Jackson does? We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. British Prime Minister Theresa May's Brexit deal was given another thumping um, defeat in Parliament on Tuesday, despite her last-minute efforts to secure concessions from EU leadership, leaving the state of Brexit far from clear just weeks before Britain, in fact, two weeks, is set to leave the bloc. The withdrawal agreement, hashed out with European leaders in 2018, was defeated 391 to 242, despite a dramatic last-minute trip to Strasbourg in May, uh, or rather by May, on Sunday. Um, on uh, Monday, after which she declared she'd secured legally binding uh, changes to the deal in an effort to appease parliamentarians. It was the second such defeat for the bill after it was rejected 432 to 202 in January, the largest defeat for prime minister in the history of the House of Commons. The president has put his bigotry into policy, so says uh, one uh, lawmaker. The president was discussing immigration at the time he called certain countries unflattering name. And I might add, these are countries where people of color were. The president has separated people from their families down the border. These happen to be people of color. The president wants a Muslim ban. It was bungled and they had to come back several times to try to correct it. The president is imposing bigotry and policy on the country. That's a quote from U.S. Representative Al Green on Your World with Neil Cavuto, explaining why he wants to bring the proposal of impeaching the president to a vote despite reluctance from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Governor Gavin Newsom is putting a moratorium on the death penalty in California, sparing the lives of more than 700 death row inmates, the Sacramento Bee reported. An effort to repeal the death penalty was thwarted by voters three years ago, but Newsom is issuing an executive order to circumvent and defy that reproach. 
Former FBI lawyer, well, we've already talked about that. The uh, Defense Department has approved a new policy that will largely bar transgender troops and military recruits from transitioning to another sex and require most individuals to serve in their birth gender, according to the Associated Press. It falls short of all-out transgender ban that was initially ordered by the president, but it will likely force the military to eventually discharge transgender individuals who need hormone treatment or surgery and can't or won't serve in their birth gender. The order says the military service must must implement the new policy in 30 days, giving some individuals a short window of time to qualify for gender transition if needed, and it allows service secretaries to waive the policy on a case-by-case basis. Of course, gender transition is never needed. More than a dozen Republican senators introduced legislation on Tuesday that would make it easier for Congress to terminate future national emergency declarations. Days before the chamber will vote on the president's uh, uh, declared national emergency. The legislation spearheaded by Senator Mike Lee would require that Congress pass a resolution extending an emergency declaration after 30 days for it to continue. Otherwise, the declaration would be terminated. Lee's legislation would not impact the president's current emergency declaration on the wall, but if passed, would impact any future emergency declarations. And North Korea is covertly developing and testing nuclear arms and ballistic missiles at civilian facilities in a bid to prevent a decapitation of its military against its weapons, plants and storage depots, according to a new report by the U.N. panel of experts. Additionally, the Security Council panel stated that the experts' latest report that North Korea engaged in massive illegal transfers of oil and coal in violation of sanctions designed to punish Pyongyang for nuclear and missile development. National Security Advisor John Bolton on Sunday said the Trump administration is taking a wait-and-see approach to those activities. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, in fact, in our very next segment, we'll talk with Barbara Marlowe. She's the co-author of A Brave Face, Two Cultures, Two Families, and the Iraqi Girl Who Bound Them Together. In fact, she co-authored the book with that Iraqi girl, Tiba Farat Marlowe. We'll tell you more about that family, or families is probably a better way to, uh, uh, to refer to them. Taking a look at, um, well, a flashback. On this day in 1980, Ford Motor Company chairman Henry Ford II announced he was stepping down the same day a jury in uh, Winnemac, Indiana, finds the company not guilty of reckless homicide and the fiery deaths of three young women in a Ford Pinto. And on this day in 1974, the first Chili's restaurant is opened in Dallas by entrepreneur Larry Levine. Never really got into Chili's. Uh, on this day in 1964, bar manager Catherine Kitty Genovese, 28, is stabbed to death near her home in Queens, New York. The case gains notoriety over the supposed reluctance of Genovese neighbors to respond to her cries for help. It turns out that story was not told accurately. Former Vice President Joe Biden will run for president in 2020. That, according to a senior Democratic lawmaker speaking to The Hill yesterday, a move that still shakes up the crowded Democratic primary field and makes him the clear frontrunner for his party's nomination against President Trump. I'm giving it a shot, Biden said, matter-of-factly, during a phone call with a, white, uh, with a House Democratic uh, lawmaker within the past week, a conversation the congressman uh, recounted to The Hill and interpreted as a sure sign that Biden will run in 2020. 
In the brief phone call, the former vice president asked if uh, if he could bounce some campaign strategy ideas off the lawmaker and invited the lawmaker to sit down with him in person in the near future. Biden also said he hoped to have the lawmaker support something the lawmaker did not commit to. Biden responded that there was no harm if they uh, keep talking, according to the uh, again, the lawmaker who spoke to the Hill on the condition of anonymity because of the sensitive nature of the phone conversation, which he probably shouldn't be sharing because of the sensitive nature of the phone conversation. But Biden didn't share any details about when or where he planned to make his formal presidential announcement. The lawmaker said Biden and his wife, Jill, just returned from vacation in St. Croix in the Caribbean, where they reportedly discussed potential pitfalls and began finalizing their plans. The former vice president spokesperson, Bill Russo, he refuted the idea that the former vice president is absolutely running. He has not made a final decision, no change. But at the, an event with firefighters Tuesday morning, the vice president teased a 2020 presidential run as the crowd chanted, run, Joe, run. I appreciate the energy you all show when I got up here, Biden told an energetic crowd of the International Association of Firefighters annual conference in D.C. Save it a little longer. I may need it in a few weeks. Be careful what you wish for. Well, we'll see what happens. The game of back and forth. I'm going to run. I'm not going to run. Maybe you'll have to wait and see. Uh, the former vice president uh, hasn't yet uh, committed to that run for the uh, uh, for the White House, but he has offered a few comments about the tone of the race thus far. He appeared to reflect on his own recent comments and the fact that he was uh, shamed into apologizing for calling current Vice President Mike Pence a decent guy during a speech on Tuesday at the Association of Firefighters. If you notice, I get criticized for saying anything nice about a Republican. Folks, that's not who we are. Pence press secretary Alyssa Farah was quick to respond. So is Mike Pence, a decent guy again. Well, Biden also hinted that Tuesday that an announcement about his 2020 plans was coming soon, telling the gathered group that he might need their energy shortly. While a wheelchair-bound Paul Manafort learned today that he will serve nearly seven years in prison after a federal judge nearly doubled the term handed down by another jurist in a separate case just last week. But the second sentence is as many weeks, uh, uh, or rather in as many weeks, won't end the former Trump campaign chairman's legal woes moments after the... uh, uh, the term was handed down. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office announced a fresh uh, indictment of Manafort in uh, on state charges, including mortgage fraud in uh, New York. The case puts the ailing 69-year-old lobbyist who served as Trump's campaign chairman for three months during the tumultuous 2016 election in further legal jeopardy. The latest sentence handed down by U.S. District Judge uh, Amy Berman Jackson in Washington, D.C. federal court was for 73 months in connection with Manafort's guilty plea related to foreign lobbying and witness tampering. But Jackson ordered a portion to be served concurrently with a 47-month sentence meted out last Thursday in Virginia, meaning Manafort uh, has 81 months left to serve behind bars. Manafort was credited with nine months' time served. The sentencing uh, concluded one of the highest-profile cases to emerge from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russian investigation, though the charges against Manafort did not pertain to Russian collusion or any work he did with the Trump campaign 2016. The two counts for which Manafort was sentenced Wednesday carried a maximum prison term of five years each. This defendant is not a public enemy, number one, but he is not a victim either, the U.S. District Judge for the District of Columbia, Amy Berman Jackson said on Wednesday. The question of whether there was any collusion with Russia was not presented in the case, period. Therefore, it was not resolved 
uh, by this case. Well, Jackson added that prior to the appointment of Mueller as special counsel, the Justice Department was looking into the crimes. Saying, I'm sorry I, uh, I got caught is not an effective plea for leniency, Jackson said earlier. Manafort, who suffers from gout, arrived in the courtroom Wednesday in a wheelchair wearing a suit and tie and declared that he was sorry. But again, uh, further charges in uh, the in New York uh, have now been uh, levied, and that may continue the legal woes for Mr. Manafort. Well, the Federal Aviation Administration today ordered two Boeing 737 MAX jets, one model of which was involved in the fatal Ethiopian Airlines crash that killed 157 people to be temporarily grounded in the U.S. Now, it's important to make the distinction. There are Boeing 737s that have been around for some time. We're talking about the Boeing 737 MAX. The agency said the decision was made to ground both the Boeing 737 MAX 8 and the Boeing 737 MAX 9 models as a result of the uh, data gathering process and new evidence collected at the site and analyzed. The grounding will remain in effect, rather, pending further investigation, including examination of information from the aircraft's flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders that were recovered earlier this week in that Ethiopian uh, crash. President Trump earlier Wednesday said the FAA planned to announce that the jetliners would be grounded upon landing at their destinations. He said that both pilots and airlines had been notified. Any plane currently in the air will go to its destination and thereafter be grounded until further notice, the president told reporters. The safety of the American people and all people is our paramount concern. The news comes after Canada's transport minister earlier Wednesday announced the country would be barring the MAX 8 jet from its airspace, saying satellite tracking data showed possible but unproven similarities between the Ethiopian airliner crash and a previous crash involving the model five months ago. The president said that the U.S. worked in conjunction with Canada to make the decision to ground the planes, and he added that his administration is also working closely with Boeing and other countries on the matter. Now, the planes are no longer the property of uh, of Boeing. I, I'm not sure you can even recall them as, as Boeing. They're owned by the airlines, but certainly as the designer and the uh, the company that sold those airlines, they're involved in what uh, what happens next. Boeing is an incredible company, the president said. They're working very, very hard right now, and hopefully they'll uh, very quickly come up with an answer. Now, some are arguing that this uh, goes to the training of pilots, uh, others suggesting there's something wrong with the uh, MAX system altogether. Boeing, in a statement, said the company continues to have full confidence of the safety or in the safety of the 737 MAX. However, Boeing added that out of an abundance of caution and in order to reassure the flying public of the aircraft safety, they're supporting the temporary suspension of operations of the entire global fleet of 371 737 MAX aircraft. So those that were in the air at the time of the announcement landed at their final destinations but will not take to the air again until this uh, is resolved. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Barbara Marlowe. She's a co-author of A Brave Faith, Face, rather, Two Cultures, Two Families, and the Iraqi Girl Who Bound Them Together. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, it was a typical Sunday morning in 2006 when Barbara Marlowe first saw the photo that changed her life. It was the photo of a four year old, Tiba Farat. Fadhil, and I'm certain I've mispronounced that. I apologize. Her face, her head, her hands had been severely burned during a roadside bombing. 
in the province in Iraq. It was Tiba's eyes that captivated Barbara. They were wide, they were dark, soulful. They seemed to cry out across oceans with a single message, and that message was, help me. Well, that's the inspirational story of two mothers reaching across cultures and continents to love a little girl who needed help. A Brave Face includes material written by Tiba, now a young woman, and her Iraqi mother, Dunia, at key moments in their stories. The book also explores the connection forged between Barbara and Dunia over the past decade, a deep bond between two mothers that's flourished despite the distance, the strife of war, and the horrors of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Well, Barbara Marlowe is the Marketing and Public Relations Director for the law firm in Northeast Ohio. She's uh, served on several boards for nonprofits and is currently a member of the University Hospital's Rainbow Babies and Children's Leadership Council and Dogs Unlimited Rescue. She's also president of the Iraqi Children's Foundation. She and her husband, Tim, live in an eastern suburb of Cleveland, along with Tiba and their dog, Becca. Now, Tiba is a sophomore in high school now at uh, Gilmore Academy. She focuses uh, on her uh, future as a pediatric um, anesthetologist. Uh, She hopes one day to volunteer with Doctors Without Borders. She's an accomplished dancer. She has a talent for creating and editing videos. She's a gifted public speaker and skilled speech writer. And she's balancing two mothers and two fathers at some great distance. The book tells her story and the stories of those who love her. Thank you so much for joining us today, Barbara. Hi, how are you, Georgia? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's just a pleasure to have you. This is such a heartwarming story. Um, I'm I'm grateful that you've chosen to share it, but it's not just your story. It's the story of you as a mother and the mother in Iraq who uh, continues to love her daughter who lives here. The story begins yeah. with you seeing an image. Take us uh, from that image and what uh, what happened next? Well, it was just one of those mornings you're heading out the door on a Sunday, and I picked up the um, a local newspaper here, and there was an article about children in Iraq that needed multiple surgeries and couldn't get them because the surgeons had fled the country. And the article I was reading now was back in 2006. So we were at war then. Mm-hmm. And Featured were several photographs, but one of them was of this little four-year-old girl sitting on her father's lap and with the kind of eyes that you described, and I was so taken by her. It was as if everything had blacked out around me, and I know that sounds so silly, but it really did happen, and I couldn't focus on anything but her. And I cut out the article, and I put it in my pocket, and determined that I was going to contact the journalist who was stationed in um, Baghdad at the time and see if he could talk to her family and um, if they would permit her to come if I could find her the help that he need that she needed and um, he agreed so she uh, he spoke to the parents and uh, they were they were thrilled because they had just been told it would be nothing short of a miracle if anybody did respond at all. And um, so I, started, I got to work immediately on uh, the medical component, uh, getting her a new wig. And uh, then I had to navigate the political quagmire of trying to get a little girl here from a country that we were at war with. Now, had you ever done anything like this before or thought about doing anything like this before? Never. If somebody, if you would have talked to any of my friends 15 years ago and said this was going to happen, they would have said that you are out of your mind. By then, you know, I'm older, um, I didn't have children, I was really focused on 
my work and my career. And, you know, when you don't have kids, your life is really different. You're a little bit, you know, more obtuse in in what you do uh, because I didn't really have any responsibilities and I did a lot with animals. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's that old saying called man plans and God laughs. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, I know that day he must have been roaring, you know, because there was no way that, um, what I thought I was going to do was going to end up um, like it did today. So, Can you describe that little four-year-old? She is in a black and white uh, newspaper photo. Her eyes captured mm-hmm. your attention. But what about the rest of her appearance? What was it about this little girl who survived a bombing in Iraq that captured your heart? Well, I could see how tiny she was. And she had this head that was, all, or head and face that was all scarred. And her mouth on one side was pulled down from the scar tissue. The accident happened, and I always call it an accident. I guess I can never say the word bombing. Um, When she was 19 months old. So she was just a baby. And her three-year-old brother was killed Mm. in that uh, same explosion. And so, you know, I I kept, my head is playing this um, movie reel or this TV reel with, you know, seeing a little child like that get injured at 19 months, I couldn't even imagine how her mom felt. And so um, her face was all, like I said, all scarred. And in a black and white photograph, it, it looked even more so, you know, because there was no dimension to the photograph. But it was just those eyes. They were the saddest eyes. And she had a tiny little crooked smile. And it just captivated my heart. And I remember getting started on trying to get her here and trying to navigate through everything. And about six months into it, you know, I'd go three steps forward and two back and I'd get all agitated and frustrated. And I remember one day just going out in my driveway and I was screaming at God and blaming him for everything and why aren't you helping me and just rambling. And as I turned to come back in the house, at my feet was a golf ball marker. And I know it you know, wasn't there before. And when I picked it up and turned it over, it said, God loves you. And it was right at that moment that I knew everything was going to be okay. And, you know, there was, of course, another five or six months of all kinds of turmoil. But the bottom line was, is that she arrived one year to the day that I read about her. The book is co-authored with your daughter, Teba, and in the third Mm -hmm. chapter, she writes of herself, my mom called me Teba, and please uh, correct me if I'm mispronouncing her name, which means good Mm -hmm. or sweet, because she says, when I was born after a long and complicated birth, I smiled at her. Life as an infant in a small war-torn Iraqi village was truly devastating before and after the accident. From stories I've heard, I was something close to a little Arab curious George. Every story my mother tells me ends with me getting myself into some kind of trouble. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so funny because she, um, a lot of her, the things that her mother said and a lot of her mother's stories uh, before I was able to really communicate with her mom were things that paralleled her life here at different times. And so, or things that I might have said to Tiba, her mom would have said to her. So there's so many parallels in this story. But yeah, Tiba is a real curious, George. (laughs) Now, you set out on this quest to 
uh, find this little girl and to find help for her, which would mean that she would come to the States. What kind of relationship was required for you to forge with her parents in order for that to happen? And was the expectation that she would come here, she would receive the treatment that she needed and ultimately return to her family? Well, in, to address the relationship, we really didn't have one at that time. I mean, they just blind, blind faith uh, felt that uh, their daughter was finally going to get the help that she needed. All they had was a picture of me that I had sent through various channels with my dog. And um, they I, apparently I must have looked safe enough to send her. Her grandmother brought her over. And it wasn't until later that um, my relationship with her family began to grow. And so um, it was very, very difficult for them because here you are sending your child off to a foreign country you're at war with and you don't speak the language and somebody's operating on your baby girl. What form did the communication take between you and Tiba's mother? Um, There was always a translator. So I had gotten to know a couple of um, women who spoke Arabic and were very helpful and who ultimately became, you know, friends. And uh, we would have three-way phone calls. So everything that I would say would have to be translated. And, of course, everything that um, Dunya would say would have to be translated. And, you know, the reality of it is, as time went by and the years went by, I we both wish that we could speak each other's language so mm-hmm. that we can have a private conversation, you know, but we, we manage with um, little um, stickers that might send a message or with Google Translate, which doesn't always get it yeah. right. <laughs> so some crazy things come out, but somehow we've always figured it out. And I'll tell you, Georgine, in all of these years, we have never asked each other about our faith, our politics, uh, our religion, our Back, I mean, our background, she and I ultimately shared and talked about, but it never mattered. None of that stuff mattered. Our culture is nothing. It was just this care and, and love for this one little girl. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Barbara Marlowe. She, along with Tiba, uh, authored the book A Brave Face, Two Cultures, Two Families, and the Iraqi Girl Who Bound Them Together. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation on the book, A Brave Face, Two Cultures, Two Families, and the Iraqi Girl Who Bound Them Together. Barbara Marlowe is my guest. She's uh, Tiba's United States uh, mother. Uh, Tiba is the mm-hmm. co-author of the book. Her uh, her Iraqi mother sta- remains in Iraq. Now, looking at the image of Tiba on the front of your book, she's a beautiful woman. You can barely tell that there have ever been scars on her face. But then when you right. see the pictures of, of her when she was such a small child, you see how dramatic um, her injuries were. Tell us a little bit about what was required in order for her to get the kind of treatment that was required. It wasn't a single surgery and she flew back home. This was a major undertaking. Major. And it's still going on uh, to some degree. Um, <clears throat> tiba has been here 12 years now, going on 12 years, and she's had 19 surgeries mm. to, uh, to replace the skin on her face. And those 19 surgeries took place in the first eight, nine years that she was here. We've taken a break for a while. Um, And what they did was a process called tissue expansion. 
and they take what looks like a balloon and they inserted it in uh, under her neck, in the skin in her neck. They were looking for skin that was good that they could use to expand. And what happens is this balloon has a cult and every week we would inject saline solution into it and it would grow like as if you were blowing up a balloon. And then when it got to a certain size, they would um, remove the expander, remove the burned skin, and pull the new skin up. So it was quite extensive, and she had expanders on her cheek. She had one on her back, her stomach, on her clavicle. She had one on her um, two, two or three on her neck. So, uh, and they get very big. They they look like huge tumors. Mm-hmm. So this poor little girl, you know, had to deal with these big expanders um, for several months until the skin would get to a certain size. And a couple of times, you know, we had some setbacks. You know, the, a port uh, malfunctioned and the skin tore and one of the expanders and we'd have to start all over. So it was not an easy process at all. Now, during this time when the surgeries are taking place and the preparation for the next surgery, mm-hmm. how did she adjust to life uh, in your home and life in the U.S.? She adapted really quickly. She learned to speak English in three months. It was incredible. And she was very smart, and she wanted to learn how to do math and how to write. She would practice all these things and want to play school, and we did enroll her in a pre-K and kindergarten school. So uh, she was a real quick study, and uh, she gained a lot of friends in the neighborhood. They all came over, and it was interesting because, you know, other five- and six- and seven-year-olds, after a while, they just didn't see it. You know, oh, that happened to you? Oh, okay, well, you know, how did you get here? How was the plane ride? You know, it was Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So it was really um, a real interesting thing to watch how innocent little kids are. At that age, and you know, they were curious, but she was certainly willing to tell them what happened, and then they'd move on and run off and play. Mm, do the next thing. Now, Tiba, um, in the accident that she was involved in, accident, that's not quite the right word, but right. in the incident that she was involved in, she lost her brother, Yosef, uh, and felt some guilt or responsibility perhaps for his death. How did she adjust to being away from her family and just uh, coping with the details of what had happened to her? and what uh, her family was still living under, at least during a a portion of that time? Well, the reality of all of it really didn't start to come out until later. And it was after her mom shared all the stories of Tiba's childhood and what it was like growing up and what happened when that incident happened um, that she really began to be able to put pieces together. Because initially, she thought her parents didn't want her, and they sent her away. Mm. So we were always trying to convince her that, you know, no, they love you. They love you. That's why you're here. You know, so, um, and now that she's older and now that she's 17, you know, she really struggled. Like we said, two moms, two dads who get along beautifully. You know, there's no um, competition at all between us. And, um, you know, she struggles with, you know, gosh, I'm here and I'm lucky and they're there, and they don't have what I have here. And she loves living in the United States and uh, would love to have her family come, but it's uh, something that we have looked at and even tried to pursue, and it's 
very, very difficult, as you can imagine, um, <clears throat> now to try to get yeah, the whole yeah. family over. Now, you've had the opportunity to travel there. She's had the opportunity to be with them. Can you describe what that reunion and that first oh, meeting was like for yeah. you? Yeah. Well, it's very hard for me to talk about because I always start to cry. But, you know, I had developed this relationship with her mom, you know, through FaceTime. And we finally decided that her mom um, was experiencing some eyesight issues. And we felt that in case she would lose her eyesight, um, we didn't want her last vision of Tiba to be scarred and little Mm. and scared at five and so my husband and I decided we have to somehow make this happen. And the only place we could get them out of Iraq, too, was Dubai. And so um, I called her and I said, we have to do this. We have to, you have to see Tiba. And, of course, it was what she always wanted as well. And I'll never forget, um, we had rented an apartment and we had some friends that came along as well. And Tiba waited upstairs with them while my husband and I went downstairs to greet Tiba. I have a friend who lives in Dubai who speaks Arabic, and he went to pick her and the kids up. And I remember seeing the car coming down the street, and I became so overwhelmed that I ran out. She turned her head, saw me, and she jumped out of the car, and it was still moving. Oh. And, um, yeah, we just um, we just stood in the street, hugged and hugged and hugged. You know, it was just spectacular and it was the best time and we called each other and we called each other an Amaraki mom and I know Tebow got annoyed with us too because I mean her mom and I were so in sync all the time <laughs> and um, so it was like she had these two moms just loving on her every minute it was Wonderful. Yeah, what Wonderful. a beautiful picture. The last chapter is written by Tiba, and it's titled All Part of His Plan. As you pointed out, she's older now, and she's thinking through all of these issues, and she sees God's hand on her life in mm-hmm. uh, in some meaningful way. She does, and she's a very faithful, very prayerful girl. Um, she really practices what she preaches. She doesn't get involved in gossip or any kind of judgment, when she hears other people say something, or even us, that may sound judgmental, she calls us out on it. She's really super smart, and um, she just knows what the priorities are, and, and God comes first in her life. And throughout the past 12 years, we have seen, and her mother has also said the same thing and has told stories of how God has really graced her. And... um it's all those stories are in the book. And I yeah. know when you read it, you think that can't possibly happen. But my right hand to God, they all did. So yeah, yeah. it's uh, very emotional. Well, it is a beautiful story. It's a beautiful picture of mothers coming together for the best interest of a child and seeing God's hand at work in this whole scenario. Thank you so much for sharing the story in the book and for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me on. And I hope everybody... Um, is inclined to want to read it. Absolutely. It's a great inspiration. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. David John Seal, Jr. He is the author of The New Copernicans, uh, Millennials and the Survival of the Church. That's coming up later this hour. Well, according to Senator Bernie Sanders and many others, the billions of dollars that are donated to political campaigns by individuals and corporations amount to legalized bribery on the part of big corporations and the super wealthy. But my next guest argues that constraining private citizens' ability to fund political speech wouldn't empower the average citizen. Instead, one of the major beneficiaries would be nationwide media conglomerates and their wealthy owners. Uh, Joe Biden, Vice President Biden, has a history of... uh, of nationwide primetime exposure on shows, including Sunday Night Football, The Late Show, and others. And this sort of nationwide primetime exposure isn't cheap, unless, of course, the network gives it away for free, as NBC did. Well, John York wrote about that some time ago. And given the fact that the vice president seems to be just on the verge of throwing his hat in the ring, we invited John York, policy analyst at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation, to join us to consider these claims that the way to uh, uh, to resolve all these issues is uh, campaign finance reform that would ultimately benefit the media. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. And uh, I think you're right. I think Joe Biden recently said he's 95 percent sure. So we're we're all waiting on pins and needles, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, aren't we, though? Um, you point out that the billions of dollars donated to political campaigns, uh, political campaigns by individuals and corporations, um, uh, are an expression of free speech. And for those who would suggest that it's legalized bribery and should be, uh, should be cut off in favor of giving the average Joe uh, more of an opportunity to uh, be influenced simply by one's political position uh, is not the right way to go. Well, I think you, I think you, you hit on in your last, last uh, sentence, exactly the problem. People don't come to their positions. What, what influences them? If you got rid of political spending uh, via super PACs or candidates or, or some, somehow constrained that sort of political money, people would still be influenced by something. Well, what? Who would be speaking the loudest? Well, a lot of people don't have to pay for coverage. They don't have to buy political ads. They don't, uh, they don't have to spend money for um, newspaper um, inches. They get that for free. And the people who benefit the most from fawning media coverage are, no surprise, the very people who want to get rid of um, super PACs and constrain campaign finance reform. You give an example from a piece that you wrote um, back in November of 2017, which you uh, review um, interviews that were done with Vice President Joe Biden, who um, at the time was considering a run in 2020. Can you kind of review that for our listeners? Uh, NBC, uh, uh, Matt Lauer interviewed him as well as others. Sure. And just as an example of what we would see more of and would have greater influence if these restrictions that are being suggested were put in place. Sure, absolutely. This is a clear example. It's not the only one. It's not the most recent. Yeah. I thought it was profound. So Sunday night football, I was, I was watching, as m- many in the country were, uh, the half, during the halftime uh, part of the broadcast, uh, Joe Biden comes on with Matt Lauer. Not not any uh, cheerleaders or marching bands, but we have Joe Biden sitting with Matt Lauer in a sports bar. And uh, Matt Lauer is asking about uh, his recent book, um, 
which d- dealt with his his relationship with his son Bo Biden. Nothing illegal there. Nothing unusual. He's a he's a private citizen, and mm-hmm. the book, from all accounts, is good. Why not cover it? Fine. But th- if you were to try to buy two minutes of such a well constructed, perfectly directed um, bit of media content. You'd have to pay uh, $2.8 million. That's how much a, a two-minute spot would cost in that time slot. And if Republicans have to pay $2.8 million to get two minutes of fawning coverage out of NBC. Uh, Democrats don't. So that's, that's the real danger. Um, Democrats frequently say that we can have a more equal, equitable democracy where everyone has an equal voice, if we just strip all the corporate dollars out and tamp down super PACs, but that's not true. Some people are going to have a, a, a even more outsized voice because there won't be any counter messaging at all. Yeah, well, and to refer to what the Republicans would buy as fawning coverage is probably a bit of a uh, an overstatement um, as well. Now, I should mention that in that interview that you use as an example with the former vice president, um, sure. the conversation did drift to his political oh, aspirations did. as well. So it wasn't just an, a conversation did. about nope. uh, the book. It, it drifted into areas that um, did, in fact, become fawning coverage about the, the uh, political uh, aspirations of a former vice president. Sure enough, Matt Lauer asked uh, during that interview, um, so do you think you're going to run, Joe? And he turns to the crowd, you know, all these people assembled, all these average Joes and Josephines assembled in the sports bar and asked, what do you think? Should I run? And they all whoop it up. And <laughs> I mean, you couldn't script it better. It, it was a, it was really even better than a campaign ad because not only wasn't he spending for, for it, but it seemed like a neutral sort of environment. You know, you see a campaign ad and people kind of roll their eyes, but... Uh, you know, some halftime broadcasting. It's not so clear what that's intended to do. You make the point that without being able to raise and spend money freely, politicians would be beholden to the media corporations that own the airwaves and the ink wells. And then yeah. they have the power to determine uh, who they're going to cover and in what way they're going to provide that coverage. Almost oh, definitely. So, like I said, uh, so on many stations, Right, the, the advertisements, the campaign ads, are the only opportunity to counter-program. Of course, we have Fox News and we have uh, radio broadcasts like your own. But uh, even though the media ha- doesn't have, or the left-wing media doesn't have the dominance they used to, let's say in the 1980s and 1990s, before Rush, before Fox News, they still call the shots. That's still what the majority of people watch. Uh, and they can ignore a story that breaks on Fox News, as we saw over and over again during the President Obama administration, um, Fast and Furious, and many others, right? They still get to choose what they cover in a way that Fox News and AM radio doesn't. So if we want to get our message out, if we want to counter-program as conservatives, uh, nine times out of ten, we have to pay for it or hope that people just so happen to turn into Fox News, but you can't reach independence that way, not really. Your only chance is to go to them, and you have to pay to do it. You write that, in effect, campaign finance reform would take an imperfect situation that accords outsized voice to wealthy citizens and corporations who can afford to offer large donations and make it much worse by concentrating power among the much smaller number of wealthy citizens and corporations that own major media outlets. Yeah, most definitely. Really, why should we treat um, a political ad by a super PAC that's owned by a wealthy Texas oil man 
differently than we treat a op-ed posted or you know, posted or run in the Washington Post that's owned by uh, wealthy Jeff Bezos. Why should those two things be treated so differently? Of course, the Democrats often say, and it's unbelievable that anyone would have this conceit, that left-wing um, media, mass media, just has a devotion to the truth. And it just so happens that the truth always stacks up on their side. <laughs> Whereas super PACs and interest groups have some sort of corrupt motive that is, that is um, driving them and driving their messages. So, I mean, that's a kind of convenient argument. And as it turns out, when the left looks for corruption, they only find it one way. When they look for institutions they want to get rid of, it, it, the ratchet only turns uh, seems to turn in one direction. And this is just an example of that. Well, you point out that the Supreme Court has recognized that the Constitution's protection of freedom of speech is worth but little if people are not free to broadcast uh, their speech. And in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, um, they make the point that competing voices should get a fair hearing. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. I mean, thank goodness for Citizens United. You know, if you look back at that case, it's really instructive. Citizens United was an interest group that had created a movie that was very critical of Hillary. And uh, the FEC decided that that movie was tantamount to uh, a campaign ad. So you see, if you, if you don't draw a really clear line between what is speech and what is tantamount to a donation to a candidate, and we have such a clear line now, the Supreme Court uh, thankfully laid out such a uh, clear distinction in Citizens United, then, then you really empower bureaucrats to make decisions about what's a real movie, what's a fake movie, what's real news, what's fake news, and regulate one as campaign, simply a campaign donation and let the other, uh, let the other voices speak as loudly as they please. Um, and that's, that would be extraordinarily dangerous. But, uh, and, and that's the reason, I think, many Democrats have honed, honed in on, this, on Citizens United versus FEC. How many times have you heard Democrats talk about that? Mm-hmm. And yeah. they'd like to, if they could, pass an amendment to essentially repeal it. Um, they, they, know. <laughs> they know the advantage they have yeah. in the mass yeah. media. Well, John York, thank you so much for uh, talking with us. I appreciate it very much. Sure. My pleasure. Great, great conversation. Thank you. Again, John York is policy analyst at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. David John Seal, Jr. He is the author of The New Copernicans, Millennials and the Survival of the Church. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We have all heard that millennials are abandoning the traditional church and embracing alternative spiritualities. But do we understand, do we comprehend what's actually happening? Is this a looming crisis or an unprecedented missional opportunity? Now, those two things are not usually juxtaposed together. My next guest does just that. How should pastors, youth ministers, ministry leaders, and even parents respond? What needs to change? Well, my next guest is a cultural analyst and millennial expert, Dr. John Seal, and he explains in his latest book how most of what we've been taught about millennials 
is wrong. Now, Dr. John Seal is the author of The New Copernicans, Millennials and the Survival of the Church. He's the former director of cultural engagement at the John Templeton Foundation. He is a fellow at Evangelicals for Social Action and a consultant to the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. He's coming to the Portland area to present a seminar that's going to be held this Friday from 9 to 1145 at Mount Scott Church of God on uh, Southeast Henderson here in Portland uh, to talk about the book and to talk about how we should reach millennials for Jesus, what we can learn from them, and what we think we know about them that might not be entirely accurate. I am so delighted to have you with us today. Welcome. Hi, Georgine. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, the book is titled The New Copernicans, Millennials, and the Survival of the Church. Perhaps we should begin with the New Copernicans. This is a, a season you're referring back to a period in which there was a major paradigm shift that most of us uh, have never experienced in our lifetime. Explain how millennials are the new Copernicans and what we can uh, learn from them as a consequence. Well, Copernicus was a, uh, an astronomer, and he uh, made the shift from a Earth-centered universe to a Sun-centered universe. He was the first, first one to propose a fundamental way of changing the way we understand our place in reality, and uh, I'm arguing that the coming generation, millennials and uh, young people in general, have adopted a new frame by which to understand religion, relationships, and reality. And I'm going to go further to say that actually this shift is an improvement, that uh, their operating system is uh, an improvement on the old operating system. They don't have the, all the right software uh, there are obviously things that they need to know, but their instinctive way of understanding relationships, religion, and reality is actually an improvement. And if we, as a church member, were to follow it, we'd end up being more like Jesus. Well, one of the things I appreciate about your book, and I have to confess that I received it late, so I haven't been able to completely finish it, is that it presents a hopeful uh, view of the future as it relates to millennials and gives the church an opportunity to rethink our approach that is, as you described, an improvement so that we can uh, look to that next generation as it is emerging uh, in a way that's quite different. We've all agreed that, yes, they see the world in a very different way, but the, the notion that there is an improvement, it's more accurate as Copernicum, uh, Copernicus was, right. that's the place where we, I, I think, sometimes get, uh, get stuck. That's right. We, uh, young people don't always have a faith problem. They have a framing problem. That is, they don't like the way the church has framed faith. And so if we can understand how to reframe our understanding of uh, faith, we'd actually end up uh, being much closer to Jesus. And I am the champion of millennials in America. I think they're the greatest opportunity for the church. I think that they don't actually even appreciate uh, the insights that they intuitively have. And one of the goals of my book is to both right or wrong, because they have been misperceived and blamed for everything, uh, and uh, also to give them a language so that they have a way to articulate uh, their important insights, ones that I think are particularly important for the church if it's to 
pass on its legacy to the next generation. Mm. Uh, In your uh, foreword, Eric Swanson writes this, and I thought it was very insightful. Galileo was a Copernican caught in an Aristotelian age. Everything about his experience told him reality was different than what the established order was telling him. He was seeing the world through different lenses with different implications. He carefully brought facts and evidence to the bench, but old entrenchment ideas, theories, and beliefs have a strictness that's hard to displace. He couldn't find his place at the table. Imagine what it was like for Galileo to realize through observation and experience that the world was not the way everyone else assumed it to be like. Like Galileo, you too may be speaking the same language, but think and experience something vastly different. That's a a great picture of what we are experiencing today, but don't necessarily recognize as the paradigm shift or a a new way of of seeing the world um, as it is uh, our challenge today. Yeah, a lot of times we think that we can simply argue and add on facts, but uh, frames are more important. And people think always first in a frame or a picture. And if the facts don't fit the frame, they'll bounce off and the frame will stay and the facts will go away. So we need to actually speak in a way that addresses both understand and uh, appreciates this frame shift and to reframe our faith and the way we communicate about our faith in a more meaningful way to this younger generation. And I think we'll end up actually becoming more like Jesus in the process. I think millennials actually are the prophetic voice for the church that help us understand how we have adopted a mindset that is actually counter to the ancient church. And uh, we need to go back to the framing of the ancient church in order to be equipped more effectively for the future. We're talking about uh, a significant book, The New Copernicum's Millennials and the Survival of the Church. You say that the churches, the millennials are both the church's greatest challenge and its most exciting new opportunity, which again brings a hopeful uh, message to the, the body of Christ. But in addition to that, you also provide a sort of a bridge how generations uh, past and present can communicate and glean from millennials and we as the body of Christ together can reflect what ultimately is the right course for the church to take into the future. That's right. And I think it's also important since uh, you are a key voice and pillar in the Portland community to recognize that uh, the perspective that I'm articulating, uh, this new Copernican uh, ethos or spirit or understanding is actually most appreciated in the Pacific Northwest. And it's my view that the Pacific Northwest is the missional front line for the church and that the rest of America will end up becoming more like the Pacific Northwest. And therefore, the greatest opportunity for the church is to know how to deal with this in the very context in which God has placed the people of the church in Portland and Seattle, etc. So I'm extremely excited to uh, be in Portland. And I'm looking forward to learning from uh, my experience there and to having a meaningful conversation because I'm of the opinion that um, though sometimes this is challenging when we're operating within the old frame, the new frame creates huge opportunities for the church 
that we have yet to uh, capitalize on. Mm. We're talking about the seminar that's going to be held this Friday, the 15th of March, from 9 a.m. to 11.45 at Mount Scott Church of God uh, over on uh, Henderson here in Portland. The cost is $10 per person. There are going to be refreshments provided. But this is a great opportunity to learn more. And it seems to me that we have to be intentional. First of all, we have to recognize that there, uh, there is a chasm between the generations and the value of bridging that chasm requires some humility on our part as well as intentionality. Yes, the biggest mistake we have is not listening uh, to our children uh, who are millennials. I have three. And uh, and to not only listening, but listening with a an appreciative ear. Uh, so a lot of their insights are incredibly important. <laughs> They're going to be... Uh, from a theological standpoint, they're going to be more Trinitarian. That is, they deal with ambiguity and paradox more easily. They're going to be more incarnational because they live out of lived experience. Uh, they're going to be more aspirational because they're deeply committed to making the world a better place. Uh, and they're going to be fundamentally relational and communal in their orientation. So if you take that Trinitarian, incarnational, relational, and aspirational, uh, my view is, now, who does that sound like? Hmm. And uh, that is uh, their, now, do they all, have they all figured it all out? No. But their operating system, that is their instinctive approach toward understanding relationships, reality, and religion, are fundamentally framed in a way that we can uh, speak to meaningfully uh, as members in the church. And so far, and in many cases, haven't done as good a job, although I would say many of the churches in the Pacific Northwest are leading the way in knowing how to communicate more effectively to this new way of thinking. We're talking this afternoon with Dr. David John Steele. He is the author of the new Copernicum's Millennials and the Survival of the Church. He writes about how to understand the vast changes in worldview, values, and perspective from previous generations, the four segments of the millennial marketplace, and how each of them thinks about God and spirituality, and how to build a ministry that connects with millennials in the core values which drive them. Dr. Steele is going to, or rather Dr. Seal, is going to be presenting a seminar this Friday. We'll make sure you have all the important details. You can also go Go to our webpage, the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, or kpdq.com, and we'll have the details for this Friday's event there as well. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, The New Copernicans, Understanding the Millennials' Contribution to the Church. Uh, author Dr. John Seal is my guest. He provides a roadmap to this new millennial landscape and an antidote to being drawn off course. Now, you make the point that uh, millennials are the most studied and most misunderstood generation. We think we know who and what they are. They oftentimes resist our our way of describing them or categorizing them. And you make the uh, comparison to watching a 3D movie without 3D glasses. You see something, but it's distorted. And in the book, you seek to um, correct this distortion by providing the, the kind of multifaceted analysis of millennials that we need to better understand them and perhaps for them uh, to better navigate uh, with the broader body of Christ. How is it that we understand so little but have so much information? Well, I was uh, when I worked for Templeton, I wanted to do a survey on uh, religiously unaffiliated young people, uh, sometimes called religious nuns, N-O-N-E. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and uh, I asked a uh, Portland-based uh, research company uh, to do this uh, survey for me. And they said, uh, well, actually, it can't be done. And I said, why? They said, well, they're asking all the wrong questions. I said, uh, you ask 2D questions of a 3D reality, you'll get a 2D answer, but it won't describe the reality of uh, what is the nature of the case. He said, the only way you can do this is by first uh, listening and uh, doing an ethnography, listening to a community, and let them write the questions. And so having 50-year-old 50 white sociologists use old-frame questions to describe a new-frame reality is going to give you a distorted perspective. Uh, I talked to a number of survey researchers on uh, millennials, and they say, well, actually, it's really difficult to uh, even get uh, survey research because all survey research is, almost all survey research is done by telephone interview, and uh, millennials don't have landlines, so it's a problem. <laughs> so they have a problem getting their sample set. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a problem with the way the instrument is developed using old questions. And third, uh, they often use an interpretive framework on the questions to analyze it. The three most common ones is one that millennials are basically uh, – the older generation, but delayed, so that they'll end up coming back to church, they'll end up having children, they'll end up being just like their parents, but just it's a delayed maturation. That's one theory, which I think is totally wrong. And the second is to say, well, uh, they actually just don't have really good social relationships because they're overly committed to their cell phones, so they have low social capital. Uh, and the third is to say they're actually becoming just more secular. Uh, and uh, I'm also arguing that the fact that people are religiously unaffiliated has nothing to bear on whether or not they're open to spiritual realities in a wide-ranging way. In fact, they may be more open than the, their parents in the previous generation. Now, maybe not as open in the same traditional ways, maybe not as open to Christianity, but the openness to uh, spiritual longings is a great improvement uh, over the uh, previous generations. And I just think uh, the fact that we have a hard time with our samples, a hard time with our coming up with the right questions, and the fact that we use interpretive analysis on them, that they would never resonate. Now, let me just say this. If I were to tell a story about you and your friends, uh, and I'm speaking as a white male, and I'm speaking to Georgine as a person of color, a black woman, with all the uh, dynamics that she's lived with, and I were to tell a story about her and her friends, and she was not able to see herself in the story I was telling, or worse, it uh, really made her angry. That's how millennials feel about the way people like, usually people my mm -hmm. age, talk about them. Mm -hmm. They don't see themselves in this story, and the story that is being told about them tends to piss them off. <laughs> and so the fact of the matter is, um, if that's the case, then maybe, just maybe, there's something wrong with the story you're telling.
Yeah. And so my goal in my book is to listen carefully. And uh, uh, one of the great encouragements is that it has been so well received, uh, not only by my millennial kids, but by their friends and others who found a great encouragement. Uh, and finally, somebody who's actually listened and heard uh, how life looks from their point of view. Well, I have to say I'm not a millennial, but I found it extremely hopeful and encouraging as well. Again, we're talking about the book, The New Copernicans, Millennials and the Survival of the Church. My guest, Dr. David John Seal, uh, who's coming to Portland on Friday to present a seminar. We'll give you details in just a moment. One of the ways that helped me understand the the course that millennials are taking uh, in, in terms of their faith journey, uh, you point out that millennials are following in C.S. Lewis' spiritual pilgrimage and that we, we need to revisit and understand what that pilgrimage looks like to better understand uh, how millennials are thinking and how they're moving forward. That's right. Lewis, I argue that there are basically four uh, what I'm going to call, I mean, a lot of people in the church use the term worldview. That's a little too academic and heady for me. So I use another term called social imaginary which is simply the stories we tell in our advertising and in our movies and our TV shows about the nature of the good life. Uh, so that's what I mean by social imaginary. And I'm basically saying there are four versions, there's four kinds of that. And uh, what we see is that uh, many people operate in one that is um, has a transcendent, God-centered perspective, but those views are held with a kind of closed fist a kind of uh, unbelievable certainty. They have a corner on the truth. And that's where Lewis started. He grew up in uh, Belfast. uh, And uh, these are people who see reality in black and white categories. And if you know anything about Belfast, there's actually a wall that goes right down the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And it's divided between Protestants and Catholics. And the fact is, all of their reality is framed in a binary, either-or kind of perspective. So that's where Lewis... uh, started in his life. His mother died, and uh, in high school, he became an atheist. And so he moved to, uh, and he was a very devout atheist, and he, uh, like the new atheist, uh, he had a totally secular perspective, and he held that secular view with the same kind of um, confidence and certainty as uh, the fundamentalist did when he was a uh, Uh, a nascent Christian. So then he moved to another category where he was open to the possibility, even haunted by the possibility of transcendence, but he had no understanding of what that would be, and he lived a fairly secular life, but he was open to explore uh, the possibility of uh, uh, larger um, sets of meaning and spiritual realities. And that's where I think most millennials are, um, and uh, Lewis was very interested in myths, uh, particularly interested in Norse myths. So we have all the myths like Thor and others that are being told in, by Marvel Comics, etc. cetera. Uh, Neil Gaiman uh, wrote a book called American Gods, which is also a TV show, mm-hmm. which is about Norse myths. He's the leading authority on Norse myths. Well, Lewis would have been at this stage in his spiritual development right in the middle of that conversation. And then uh, he uh, met a person, uh, Tolkien and uh, Dyson, who uh, were friends of his, and uh, 
they talked about where he was, and they said, well, actually, there's actually a larger myth, and it actually happened in history and is actually true. And uh, it was that shift he moved from being someone who was open to having a deep appreciation first of uh, theism and then eventually of Christianity. And that entire journey for Lewis took about 15 years. Hmm. And there was, it wasn't a short little journey. It was a long process. And a lot of the times when we think about evangelism and uh, leading people to Christ, we think of it as a light switch. The picture we have in our mind is a light switch. I say yes, I say no, I make a decision for Jesus, or I make no decision for Jesus. And that's really the wrong picture to have in our mind. The picture we should have is going on a walk with someone on a spiritual pilgrimage and walking alongside them and asking questions and moving along with them at their own pace. And so I, uh, when I sign my books, I always sign it the same way, in common pilgrimage. And so one of the things I want to do with this book is to help uh, people who are churched or unchurched enter together in a common spiritual pilgrimage so that they can come to a deeper understanding of what is true about themselves and true about the nature of reality. The book is The New Copernicum's Millennials and the Survival of the Church. There's so much more in the book than our conversation reflects. But there is an opportunity to hear from uh, Dr. Seal as he'll be speaking here in the Portland area on Friday. And I'm frantically looking for my notes for those details. Uh, That's going to be Friday, 9 a.m. to 1145 at Mount Scott Church of God. He'll be discussing the contents of the New Copernicum's. And I imagine that the book will be available there for purchase? Uh, Actually... It won't, but I'll be giving out a, uh, a a magazine that gives out not only a review of the book, but a lengthy article on uh, where the church should be going if it takes this argument seriously, what are the next steps and implications for the church. Well, I have to tell you, this is such an excellent resource. I'm encouraged to have it. Look forward to studying it further and uh, trying to help it influence the way I uh, perceive and uh, communicate with in common pilgrimage, as you put it, with my millennial friends. Thank you so much for talking with us today, and we look forward to having you in Portland on Friday. Thank you so much. It's going to be an honor. Thank you. Again, uh, Dr. David John Seal is the author of The New Copernicum's Millennials and the Survival of the Church. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. He is going to be in Portland on Friday. It costs about $10 to go to this event uh, at Mount Scott Church of God on Southeast Henderson in Portland. If you can come and you care about the future of the church and uh, the connection with millennials, understanding them and engaging in common pilgrimage, this is a great opportunity to begin that conversation. And by the way, there will be conversation uh, during this event uh, on Friday morning. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Uh, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. This is our final segment. Um, I hope you uh, enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Uh, Seal. I- I'm really excited about the book. I'm excited about him coming to Portland. And if you have the opportunity uh, to attend that event, I would encourage you to do just that. We know that millennials are leaving the church in droves. And the question is, can evangelical Christianity survive without them? Well, the answer is No. Uh, But there is a unique and brilliant synthesis of theology and sociology that Dr. Seal does in his book, arguing that millennials can show us the way forward to a more authentic faith in Christ 
and his book um, walks through that. The book is for pastors, and you'll find resources for reframing your entire ministry. Parents will find resources for understanding their millennial child. Uh, Millennials will find a language to speak out with wisdom and renewed boldness in this whole process. Um, And because the American church is in survival mode, and this is, again, a great opportunity to understand where we stand, where we should move forward and uh, what God is doing among us. So I'm excited about the whole thing. Now, tomorrow on the program, we're going to have our friends from World Concern join me in studio, and I'm looking forward to that. As you know, during... Uh, Radiothon days, we devote the entire day on the station to a singular cause. And we do this with some regularity because, as you and I both know, the world is very large and there are significant needs uh, here at home as well as all across the globe. And it really is an honor to have the opportunity to present to you a specific need where we can do something specific to help alleviate the pain and suffering of others, to do justice and Uh, and to provide some solace in Jesus' name. And that's precisely what we're going to do tomorrow. World Concern will join us for our Radiothon. And we're going to return to a campaign that we've done here before, and that is the 44-cent cure. And you think about what on earth could you cure for 44 cents? Well, we're talking about parasites. And I have to confess, I returned recently from traveling abroad and brought with me parasites. I was miserable for several weeks before being tested to find out that that's precisely what the problem was. I was given a a course of medication and uh, that alleviated the problem. I didn't have to walk down the halls here at KPDQ and pronounce myself unclean. Um, It was fairly easy to relieve the the suffering associated with that. But for children all across the the globe, and we'll focus on some specific areas uh, tomorrow, uh, in the absence of that cure, it can either end your life which is less likely, but it makes you more vulnerable to other things that will end your life. And there are hundreds of thousands of children all over the world whose lives come to an end. And then there are those who are just living life in misery, uh, really unaware that there is um, any other way to live because these parasites have such a tremendous impact on one's health. So we're going to talk about how 44 cents Uh, can alleviate that kind of suffering. And then in the context of World Concern's broader work, uh, when they're in an environment where they have access to clean drinking water and other resources that make it less likely that they're going to contract parasites in the future, uh, this really is a, a, a solution to a very large problem. So that's going to be our focus tomorrow right here on uh, the Georgine Rice Show, as well as throughout the day on KPDQ. And I hope you will plan uh, to join us. In fact, I would encourage you even now to just utter a little prayer. Lord, would you have me uh, participate in this campaign? Now, everybody doesn't uh, participate in every campaign. We um, recognize that there are lots of listeners here and some things resonate in the hearts of some listeners and not so much in others. But if uh, perhaps this time around it's an opportunity for you to respond, we would encourage you to do that. And that will be our focus on uh, Thursday here on the program. On Friday, we're going to step away from the more serious uh, news issues, although if there is breaking news, we'll try to bring you the headlines and make sure you're up to date. But we're going to focus on the lighter side of the news. James Blend will... Oh, you're going to be gone, James Blend, on this Friday. But anyway, we're going to focus on the lighter side of the news and look forward to uh, to doing that to round out the week. So uh, once again, want to remind you that this Friday at Mount Scott Church of God, there's an opportunity to hear uh, my previous guest, Dr. David John Seal. Uh, that starts at uh, 9 o'clock a.m., and it's $10 at the door. There are going to be resources there to 
uh, connect you with the book and other uh, information. So I hope you'll take advantage of uh, that opportunity. I want to thank James Blinn for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.